welcome to Nutrition Assessment. In this episode, we have the audio-only portion of our synchronous Zoom class from today on assessment of the accessory organs of digestion, so the liver, gallbladder, and pancreas. And this is the content that Peter presented for us. So do be sure to head to Carmen to check out the slides to see pictures of each and every one of Peter's dogs, which we all know is, is the real reason you're here. All right, I want to start. So let's get going with the presentation. So today I'm going to talk about um, digestive accessory organs. Um, and Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but when I was watching the first presentation, you went over the, um, I saw the, the, the mouth as part of the digestive system. I did, yeah. Yeah, so that's why I didn't include that in here. Because actually, technically, if we're going to talk about the digestive accessory organs, we should include the mouth. Um, but since you've already had it, I didn't, for sake of redundancy. And I want to throw in, I'm going to put up a, a, a poll and it's a Mentimeter poll. I think you have all done it. So you go to menti.com. It's a little, just a little pretest. And you, the code is 4308076. You guys log in and do that. And let's see how you answer. Basically, I just want to see what you know about accessory organs. Does anybody ever question where the terms come from? I started looking that up too. I was like, why do they call them accessory organs? When I think accessory, again, I think jewelry. Oh, I like whoever, whoever answered accessory organs or where you put your earrings. I like you. <laughs> Peter, since you can't see the chat, just letting you know that there's a, a rousing approval of all of your dogs. Oh, okay. And luckily they're asleep. All right, I'll, I'll go ahead and say, so accessory organs sadly are not where you put your earrings. Um, and Sarah, you can pipe in anytime. If you if you know where, I was trying to research where, why they call these accessory organs. And I, you know, sometimes terminology isn't always the clearest to me and I question it. Um, and actually, so digestive accessory organs, assist in the cutting and grinding of food. This is true because it, as we just talked about the mouth, the teeth are actually part of uh, the accessory organs. And what they do is they help you break down the food similar to the liver, well, not similar, the, the liver, the pancreas and the gallbladder, what we're, which we're gonna talk about, all provide uh, chemicals to help break down the food, to help down protein and the fat and the carbohydrates. And I was going for that one, that was really number two, was uh, the answer, but as I read this, and again, I'm gonna say bananas and election, food does pass through the mouth, doesn't it? And that is part of the digestive accessory organ system. So actually those two are correct. But, and, or, oh, and whoever put it for the monkeys, I don't even know if you knew it, but I remember when I was a kid, there was always be a monkey at a carnival or a circus playing an organ. Anybody else? No, am I alone there? Yeah. Do you remember those? And I, I spent a month in India and there were monkeys everywhere, but I never saw any of them playing uh, an organ. They just would knock on the windows and would want money. I'm like, you don't do that. All right. Thank you for doing that. Sarah, do you have any thoughts where accessory organ came from? No? It's like that word annotation. Does everybody know that word annotation? I'm like, where does that come from? 
I mean, they're accessory because they're not directly part of the GI tract. Although I suppose the mouth is directly part of the GI tract. I, I'm going to look that up. Or not that everybody wants to know, but I'll look it up. And when I find it, I'll share it with you. Okay. Okay, our objectives. I just came up with two simple ones for today. Identify structures and functions of digestive accessory organs. Describe assessment for digestive accessory organs. And again, since you've gone through some, you've had the first part of this with Professor Rosnack, and that was a great video. She put her lecture from Monday. Uh, you should be familiar with some of the um, the devices like the CT scan, I'm thinking, and MRI that were presented then. Okay, just a, a basic overview. So the GI tract is also known as the alimentary canal, series of hollow organs. And I can, does my cursor show up? So, you know, food, go, food will go through the mouth. And actually, so the mouth and salivary glands are actually the first part of the accessory organs. And they produce uh, amylase. So amylase will help start the breakdown of carbohydrates in the mouth. The food goes down through the esophagus and into the stomach, where it's also is further exposed to um, digestive acids like HCL. Uh, and while it's in the stomach being broken down, I'm gonna speak about this very generally. Um, it's gonna pass, it will pass into the, the duodenum, duodenum. And while it's in the duodenum, it's gonna be further exposed to other uh, chemicals that are produced by the pancreas uh, to help break down fat and protein. Oh, another, so another thing though, so while the food does pass through the mouth, it does not, these other, the, it does not pass through the liver or uh, the pancreas or the gallbladder. And I thought I, would, I came with just a little a reminder and also because I like this video showing what happened, uh, food digestion in, in action is what I call it. However well-mannered we are about getting food into our mouths, there's not much decorum about what happens next. Food doesn't simply fall from mouth to stomach. Your brain triggers waves of muscular contractions that squeeze things along your esophagus at around two inches per second. The first place it reaches is the stomach. It's really a biological blender, a churning pool of digestive juices to break down food into easily absorbable ingredients. Leaving the stomach, things are already unrecognizable. Produced in the liver is added to help the breakdown of fats. At all stages, the body is extracting the nourishment it needs from the passing flow. The walls of our intestines are a vast surface of cells that absorb proteins, sugars, and fats into our blood. It's these that will provide the energy we need for life. Was that kind of cool? Thumbs up, thumbs down? I thought that was a good segue into the accessory organs because as you saw there, it starts with the food going down and I kind of like the visual of what happens in the stomach. 
Um, but so then this is also where you saw the bile come up. The bile is a fat emulsifier uh, and it is produced by the liver and stored in the gallbladder. But that, I thought this was a perfect segue into the accessory organs. Just so you can see how everything is positioned. So on this, can you, I'm gonna do a little, I'm gonna do an annotation. I don't like that word either. Doesn't make sense to me, but well. So right here, can everyone see that? That's the liver. And over here, right there, that's the stomach. Okay, small intestine. Actually, this is the ascending, traverse, descending colon, intestines. Turn it around so you can see where everything is located. So we're now looking at from the backside, and actually the spinal column is right here. You can't see that, can you? Um, you would be blocking our view if it was there. But so I'm going to make this bigger. And so this right here, annotate that again. That's the liver. This right here is the pancreas. That is the gallbladder. And so this is the cystic duct. This is the common bile duct. This is where everything connects. So the liver produce, this is the liver again. This produces the bile. The bile will go into the gallbladder where it's stored for uh, future digestion for when you eat. Um, there's also some chemical messengers that will, when you eat, that are released in the bile to help constrict it, to release it. But so we'll see the bile, the bile will go through the cystic duct and through the common bile duct and down here and empty into uh, the small intestine, the duodenum. And we're also gonna see, so this is the pancreas here. And this also produces a pancreatic juice, which is rich with enzymes. And we're gonna, I'll, I'll show more of this to you later, but I just want to show you this graphical representation. Um, and so they all combine in here so that as the food's going down, the fat, the protein, we'll see more digestive enzymes that are activated once they get to the small intestines to help break down the food and help it get through. And I'll, breaking it down for absorption of nutrients. Any questions on that? Okay, we're gonna start with the liver. The liver is the largest gland. It has two lobes, a right and a left lobe. And you know, as I'm going through this, I'll give you some, um, some background information. It is not by far all the information about the liver. But more, what we're going to focus on is some of the digestive functions, uh, how it participates in digestion. Uh, it is, and also how to assess it when we're assessing it when something is not going according to plan. Uh, it's the largest gland, actually weighs between two and four pounds, but three pounds here. It has a right and a left lobe. Um, and I showed you where it was located. It, it's, it's kind of, it's towards the back. Um, it's retroperitoneal which also complicates how we assess it. Um, its digestive functions include protein and carbo carbohydrate metabolism. Um, I think most of you have had this. So how many are familiar with gluconeogenesis, glycolysis, glycogenolysis? It has, so it has some, it's very, a very important organ. Um, it's for digest, so it does that, but we also see that it produces bile. So bile is a fat emulsifier. What it does, what that means is that it breaks down the fat globules and it's composed of its pigments. It's uh, uh, bilirubin, which are hemoglobin waste products, 
um, uh, and actually cholesterol as well. In the bile, we also see there's a hormone, cholecystokinin, which stimulates the, bladder, the, the bladder to release the bile when you're eating. Some of the disorders involved with the liver. So we have hepatitis A, B, and C. Um, and I'm gonna go, we're gonna go over the more common one, but these are some of the, the disorders we see with the liver. Hepatitis A is involved, is basically food and fecal. So when you are, um, you've gone to eat and somebody hasn't washed their hands properly. Um, B and C are, trans, are uh, transmitted through bodily fluids. Um, autoimmune hepatitis is when you, it's a condition where your body is attacking itself. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease known as NAFLD and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis are um, two of the more prevalent types of liver disease. And we're gonna go to those further in the next slide. Uh, cirrhosis of the liver is the development of fibrotic tissue. And that's also involved in, the, in NAFLD and NASH. Hemochromatosis is excessive iron within the liver. For diagnosing viral and autoimmune, uh, what, what, the, what you'll often see is there's blood test, uh, transient elastography. And what that's doing, that is, um, it's a type of CT scan and the scan is actually looking for, it can detect the thickening or the hardening of the liver. Um, we have, there's also a physical exam involved. And so we'll, the physician will look for changes in skin, skin color, uh, lower leg edema, what we're looking at is lower leg, um, ankles and foot, but also abdominal tenderness and swelling. For cirrhosis, uh, the labs are involved here. So we're gonna look for transaminase levels, ALT, AST. I think most of you are familiar with those. Uh, look for elevated livers of bilirubin and blood protein. Imaging involved is gonna be MRI, uh, ultrasonography, CT scans, and again, the transient elastography, and liver biopsy. Um, liver biopsy is actually the gold standard, but, and you'll see that with all of these, like the, it, the best way to tell the destruction of, or the derangement of tissue within any of these organs would be to get a sample of the tissue could anybody think of reason why that wouldn't be such a good thing? What about placement? You've got some comments in the chat, oh, Peter. I, oh, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. It's it's invasive. Exactly. That's exactly. You guys know this, right? It's like that would be the best. But also, then one of the other problems with biopsies is that you may not uh, you may you may not uh, extract the right tissue. What if you get the tissue? That doesn't that isn't damaged that isn't necrotic that um, doesn't have the fibrosis. So so we use these other techniques to determine it. But there's also problems with the scan. Sometimes if the scan doesn't uh, immediately determine it or doesn't reveal it. So here's for, so non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH. Uh, the difference between these two is that NASH is has inflammation with it. Whereas non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is infiltration of liver cells with fat, with triglycerides. Um, and so what we've seen, and one of the drivers of NAFLD is obesity. Uh, so 
it's the prevalence of NAFLD parallels the prevalence of obesity. It's, it's staggering. And how, how many, probably most of you knew that already. And we also know that NAFLD is a driver of type 2 diabetes. So typically, it's not uncommon. Like, so NAFLD is typically the, the hepatic manifestation of liver disease in uh, metabolic syndrome. And so, and with metabolic syndrome, we're going to say typically we'll see the person will have uh, be classified uh, as having obesity, as having non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and having type two diabetes. And what's consistent through all of these conditions is we're going to see um, impaired lipid metabolism and carbohydrate metabolism, insulin resistance. So, and they all they're all just driving each other. And so, in this diagram here, what you'll see. So we, we start with the, the normal liver and as it's being infiltrated by fat, it also is becoming inflamed and it's that inflammation that leads to the fibrosis. And again, so part of the assessment of this is going to be, you know, the first, the, the gold standard would be to do the liver biopsy, but it's too invasive. And so what we're going to look for is then again, we'll do the, the MRI or the CT scan. Questions? Clear. Now we're gonna move on to the gallbladder. Um, and so the gallbladder is a pear-shaped organ, thin-walled, uh, about four inches long. And I showed you where it was at. It was kind of on the, the ventral side or the bot underneath of the liver. It's very strong. And this is where you store bile. And so I've got a picture over here. You can see where the gallbladder is um, and how it's connected. Typically, so the, the bile in the, in the gallbladder would go down the cystic duct and connect with the common hepatic duct and into the common bile duct, as we saw in that graphic earlier. And the whole point of bile is then to, what it does with digestion is then help um, break down the fat. But as it's going through, so what it joins up, so you can see it's right here, that common bile duct where my cursor is going through uh, connects up with the pancreas. So what happens, so we have this, the pancreatic duct and, the, and within the pancreas, we are gonna see the production of uh, enzymes, trypsinogen, trypsin, chymotrypsin, these are all to, and lipase. These all help break down fat, protein, and carbohydrate. And they are gonna, they will also, once they meet up with the bile, the bile salts, the bile acid, they become activated here in the duodenum. issues. So disorders with the gallbladder. So how many of you, most of you probably heard about gallstones, the development of gallstones. And I'm using that same picture again. So the, the gallstones are actually, you know, they're hardened cholesterol, hardened pigment stones. And you can, there's a picture right here. So it says gallstones and these can vary in size. And sometimes if they're small enough, people can pass them. Um, but if they're not, what we see is that, and you can see anywhere along this pathway, they can become a blockage. So they could, they could lodge themselves right here in the cystic duct. They could lodge them here in the common bile duct. They could also right here where, they, uh, where the, two, the pancreatic duct uh, connects with the common bile duct. So at any of these points, they can form a blockage. If we have the blockage up here in the cystic duct, what happens, it traps it traps all the bile acid. So then what has, so then the bile acid cannot get out. 
and we, what we see is inflammation. So we see inflammation of the tissue and then we see bacterial infection. And one of the treatments for this is uh, gallbladder surgery. You can live without your gallbladder. Your body will still produce the bile acids and there are some complications with that, but as the bile circulates through your digestive system, uh, your body does reabsorb some of it. Uh, in cholecystitis, so this is the inflammation of the gallbladder, we're seeing about 120,000 cases a year, 60% of them are women. Um, another issue that we see with uh, the gallbladder is injury. There could be injury to, the, to the, the different ducts. And one of them is called primary sclerosing cholangitis. And all that means is that we, with these gallstones, because this can also be acute or chronic. Maybe you develop gallstones that you're able to, you can pass them and you don't have to have your gallbladder removed. But what we're seeing is a scarring of tissue. And that scarring of tissue is just a chronic inflammation so that we see a narrowing. Sarah, any questions there? Nope. Um, there's a question in the chat and at some point I'm gonna insert my own stories because I do not have a gallbladder. Um, but first the question in the chat is what causes gallstones to form? Do you have an answer? I, so, you know, as I, again, I just I repeated myself here, didn't I? Um, some of the risk family history, um, uh, high fat diet, high, fat, high cholesterol diet, BMI over 30. It also, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you talk here in a second, Sarah, because I also was this one, pregnancy, it can happen, it occur during pregnancy and also if you've had a history of pregnancy and it can also be uh, triggered by rapid weight loss. And in addition to all those things, there's also just idiopathic gallstones, which might be my favorite word in medicine ever. Idiopathic means we don't know. And it sounds to me like we're idiots and it's, it's pretty fitting. Um, sometimes we just don't know what causes gallstones to form. Um, it could be that bile has too much cholesterol. It could be a problem with metabolism of bilirubin. Um, and it could be that the gallbladder itself is just not emptying correctly, right? So if it's not able to empty fully or when it's supposed to, then you can have gallstones form. So there's, there's all kinds of possibilities and it could just be, we don't know. There's a lot of that. I do also like idiopathic and I like iatrogenic. Iatrogenic is one of those other words we could be from, we don't know, it could be from injury. Sarah, was that your story? Were you? Your there's, story? Well, there's more to my story. So I had my gallbladder taken out when I was in grad school, which is super helpful for getting your thesis done, let me tell you. Um, it was um, my, I think Peter's getting to some of the complications of, of gallbladder. Basically anytime I ate, I had really severe pain and it was, it was higher up in my chest than you might think. Um, it was really sort of, I felt it more in my ribs and um, it took several trips to different doctors to get that diagnosed. And one of the, one of the things it's Peter's got coming up is for imaging, they did an ultrasound of my gallbladder. Um, and I remember while that ultrasound was happening, the technician asking if I'd ever had surgery on my gallbladder before. And I said, no, why? And she wouldn't tell me anything because the technician can't diagnose problems. They just take the images and send it off to the, to the radiographer to evaluate. Um, but I felt like that was suspicious. Um, it turned out that my gallbladder was contracted, meaning it had become inflamed and like infected and then shrunk back down again and full of stones. So my, my gallbladder was basically trying to get the gallstones out, but it couldn't because it was completely full of gallstones. 
Um, so I had laparoscopic surgery to have my gallbladder removed. I was 23, which the, the surgeon, when I met with him said, you know, you're too young for this, right? I was like, well, thank you, but it seems to be happening anyway. Um, and so that was, I mean, it was, it was, um, outpatient, I guess I was in the hospital for a grand total of six hours. Um, and then they sent me home. Um, my mommy came and took care of me. Thank you, mommy. I was in, I was in Georgia and she came down and took care of me. Um, and then a few years later, um, my mom ended up with, a, a gallstones. She, hers was a little bit different. The pain was so severe and so sudden that she went to the emergency department and they did imaging and they did an MRI and they, they weren't sure what the problem was. They ended up actually just going in and doing surgery to try and see what the problem was. It turned out in her case, she did not have gall stones. She had gall stone. She had one gigantic gall stone that filled up her entire gallbladder. I kid you not. They took this thing out, put it in a test tube and brought it up to my mom's room so she could see it. It was like the size of a Cadbury egg, right? So it's the wrong time of year for that particular holiday reference, but it was like the size of a Cadbury egg. It was a single gallstone. So on imaging, it didn't show up very well because they were looking for separate gallstones and she had one stone. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say, and my grandmother had her gallbladder out there. It's safe to say there's a family history in, in my family uh, for, for gallstones. And we had varying experiences with that. So it took me a long time. It's, it's a minimally invasive surgery, but again, I have a disorder that impacts the formation of connective tissue and scar tissue is connective tissue. So it took me a long time to really heal from what was even, even a, a minimally invasive surgery. I was speaking with my niece who lives in Arizona last night late and, um, she has four kids. And I, she was, and I, we were talking, I was talking about the, the gallstones. And uh, so same thing. She said hers were anywhere from four centimeters to six centimeters and they were so large, but she said that the pain, the pain from gallstones was, she, she equated it with childbirth. She goes, it was debilitating. It was very painful. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> pain, Shemaine. There we go. So some of the signs with cool. So for cholecystitis, inflammation of the gallbladder, we're going to see a tender and we've talked about this now, you know, uh, tender abdomen, abdominal pain, which is very, can be very severe, very severe, um, worsens with breathing. It might, uh, appear on our, the onset is after a fatty meal. We'll see nausea, bloating, emesis, um, and jaundice. Jaundice is the, the yellowing of the skin, the eyes, um, diagnosis of this, abdominal ultrasound. There's also the hepatobiliary nuclear imaging or also known as a HIDA scan. Uh, and what it does is there's a gamma camera that tracks a radioactive substance. And so what it'll do, it'll, it's gonna watch this flow. And if, it, if the substance isn't able to enter the gallbladder, that's a positive diagnosis. But they can also use it to measure function. So that they'll also, as it enters the, the gallbladder, they'll see what the ejection fraction is. Uh, and determine if it's in normal is between 30 and 35% ejection. Um, the scans that are used or the MRI gives you the detailed scan of structures, the blockage, inflammation, um, and the CT scan. The CT scan will reveal inflammation. Have any questions, Sarah? Anyone? You're good. 
that was it for that one. So next one, we're moving on to the pancreas. And again, so you saw, so the pancreas is one of, my, I don't know why, but it is one of my favorite organs. I feel like somebody hit me on the head with it a few years ago. Um, it's, and also it's like, it's, I, I, I should mention, I'm gonna go back. When we were talking about the liver and cirrhosis of the liver and NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, those are, that damage is reversible. You can save your liver, the patient can save their liver. Um, the frontline treatment for NAFLD and NASH is it follows the guidelines for um, obesity, uh, lifestyle, lifestyle modifications, weight loss, and increased physical activity. And with the pancreas, though, once the damage has happened, once we've seen damage to the functional tissue, it is not reversible. So again, so with the liver, reversible, pancreas, not reversible. Um, so the pancreas, you saw where it's located, it's called, it's a retroperitoneal gland behind the stomach. It has a head, a neck, a body, and a tail. Um, and so, and again, so there's a graphic over here. The, um, the smallest unit in the pancreas are called acinar cells. And within the acinar cells, we're gonna see digestive enzymes. But they're, the, these digest, digestive enzymes are highly volatile. And so they have to be packaged, they're inactivated. They're in these, gran they're in, these gran they're in granules called uh, zymogens or uh, uh, zymogen granules. So that, because we don't want them activated within the pancreas, if that happens, you'll see it'll start to eat away at it. And we don't want that. We don't want it to attack uh, the functional tissue. Um, so these cells that contain the digestive enzymes, so what we'll see is they'll release these um, digestive enzymes, uh, the trypsin, amylase, uh, lipase, and those are combined in a pancreatic juice. So it's, it's a rich fluid and there's also bicarbonate. So there's bicarbonate and water within this because we also need it so that when these highly acidic um, compounds reach the small intestines, we need to actually neutralize the acidity. We don't want the, we don't want it so acidic in the duodenum. So that's where the bicarbonate comes into play. Um, there's also, and I back up a little bit. The pancreas is the only is the only gland that offers excrine and endocrine function. Okay, so the the endo, it's a secretion of hormones um, with the endocrine. So exocrine, digestive enzymes, endocrine is the hormones, and what we'll see is that so within also within the um, pancreas we have these islets. They're like you can't see my finger. It's like a little uh, a little valley, and within this valley we have different cells. So there's a, the beta cells which are responsible for insulin, the alpha cells which are responsible for glucagon, and the delta cells somatostatin. Um, and so, beta cells you should be familiar with. I'm thinking uh, insulin. What uh, what is the purpose of insulin? You've got some comments in the chat here. We've got regulate blood sugar. Carb uptake in cells, glucose into cells, uptake of glucose by muscle, regulate blood sugar. Awesome. So this is not new material, but this is so you can so you can understand how important the pancreas is in digestion and glucose uh, homeostasis as well. The liver is also the the site where we 
after the meal, when uh, your um, insulin levels come down and we're, we see the release of glucagon, uh, gluc what, is, what is the purpose of glucagon? Hormone to break down glycogen, increase blood glucose, raise blood sugar. That's great. Okay, so now we're going to move on to there's inflammation of the pancreas, and there's two types. So we're going to see we'll either see injury to the excrement cells or the or the endocrine cells. Primarily, we're going to see injury to the excrement cells, and the two most common types are acute pancreatitis and chronic pancreatitis. And so what we see is this is when those ACNR cells are there, the granules, instead of being flowing out in the bile juice into the small intestine, they're prematurely activated within the pancreas. That's when we start to see the autodigestion of tissue. And so this, so the, how do I describe this? We're not sure how many events it takes for someone to have acute pancreatitis, pancreatitis that it becomes chronic pancreatitis. One of the problems is that uh, the spectrum of this disease is not well-defined and often we don't know. So when someone is diagnosed with chronic pancreatitis, it's often not till it's late stage. Some people will, will present asymptomatically and we won't know that they've had this destructive, the, the destruction of uh, tissue, the functional tissue. And so what also happens so that with this repeated inflammation, the repeated um, injury from these uh, digestive enzymes, activates these, uh, the primary cell of the pancreas, which are called pancreatic stellate cells. And that premature activation not only leads to the death, necrotic, so it's called necrosis, and we end up in necrotic tissue, but the activation of these pancreatic stellate cells leads to the activation of fibrotic tissue. Imagine, so then when we look at the pancreas, So on this picture here, you can see like there's this network of tubules that the, the bile, the pancreatic juice flows through. When we have the fibrosis, the fibrosis things are um, things like uh, branches or trees, they're hardened. Um, and what they do is they penetrate these tubules. They also, and so we see this, so we see blockage. We see that this fibrotic tissue is not allowing the, um, pancreatic juices to flow out of the pancreas. And then, so then we, what we're, that is gonna, again, compound this issue of inflammation. Now we're gonna have, with this development of fibrotic tissue, we're gonna see the increased chance for more um, blockage and increased destruction of tissue. Okay, so for diagnostic criteria for this, this was established by, the American College of Gastroenterology, and this was in 2012. And the diagnostic techniques used for this are clinical symptoms, labs, and CT scans, contrast-enhanced computed tomography, CECT. 
the lab tests are amylase within the first 24 hours. And what they're looking for is like when in this, one of the diagnostic uh, criteria is that amylase is three times its normal level. But we have to be careful there as well because we, saw, we also see this uh, amylase level elevated in someone who has hypertriglyceridemia and also in type two diabetes. Uh, the lab tests also include lab uh, lipase, so we'll look for elevations in the following 72 to 96 hours. Um, used to be that people would look for low calcium, uh, but that was, it turned out to be poor prognostic factor. Uh, some of the signs and symptoms we see with this, again, so like the gallbladder pain, uh, and this is my patient population. So one of my, um, I, I see a lot of people with acute uh, pancreatitis, chronic pancreatitis, the pain, the pain is debilitating. It starts in the front of the abdomen and radiates towards the back. I've, you know, patients will come in and they are just um, unable to do anything. The last thing they want to do is eat. Um, they can't even move. Um, and so it's, it's very severe. We'll also see this with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, weakness, tenderness, and distension. Um, and there's a, I put a couple of pictures down here. So you'll see this bruising down here on the abdomen and on the lateral side here. And those indicate retro, bleeding, bleeding within the retro, retroperitoneal uh, cavity. Uh, there's a classification system. And again, this was done by the um, American College of Gastroenterology. And so there's different phases, but this is again, according to what they're, they're looking at the labs. They're also looking at the scans. Um, there's two phases, early, late. They'll also diagnose severity, mild, moderate, and severe. And we're gonna see two types. So we'll see the fluid buildup, the adatomous, or necrotizing. Okay, I'm getting to the end here. And I'm just gonna kind of briefly talk about chronic pancreatitis. Again, so we, it's often diagnosed late stage because people's it's, we don't have, it's not well-defined. Uh, people sometimes are asymptomatic. Um, they may have presentation of symptoms within their visits. It typically visits are three months apart. Um, it's a progressive fibroinflammatory disease. And what we also see is that that pain, um, people don't eat. There's a fear. There's a fear and avoidance of food, um, and one of the one person one is having a chronic pancreatitis flare. We're also seeing exogen pancreatic insufficiency, and what that means is that the, the severe reduction of these digestive enzymes, and the one that we're most concerned with is the lipase, because the lipase only it is only produced within the pancreas. We will see proteins are there within the stomach. We will see enzymes, the acids that help break down the proteins. And we also saw the salivary amylase, uh, you know, when you start eating. So these other, we have redundancies so that we have enzymes for protein and carbohydrates produced outside of the pancreas to help with digestion. But the lipase, the lipase is only produced within the pancreas. So that was somebody with chronic pancreatitis that is having a flare and they are not producing enough lipase or the lipase is not getting to the duodenum, um, 
that fat is not breaking broken down. So the, the we are not they're not able to break down the fat. It is not being it is not uh, being properly absorbed. So what we see then it results in in the stool, and that's so the stool. The sign is um, called statteria. So what the indication is uh, it's oily. You'll see in the toilet, it's oily. It's foul smelling. It is um, white or gray. And it, and I know that on Monday you saw the uh, Bristol stool chart. And the Bristol stool. So if you look at the Bristol stool chart, this is be uh, the low, six or seven. Um, and these are all things that affect the intake of these people. So we see that risk for um, malnutrition. What else I want to talk about this? Let's see. And that that is what I was going to share with you about chronic pancreatitis. And again, we could look for scans. And a lot of times when we, someone is diagnosed, it's incidental. Incidental means that they've gone in for some other scan of the abdomen, and you know, maybe it's the liver, maybe it's the gallbladder, and their physician has noticed, hey, I saw something over here on the, on the pancreas. Maybe you should go have this checked out with a gastroenterologist. Thank you.